having paused our sermon series in the book of Colossians to celebrate the resurrection last Sunday when we celebrated Easter together. We're going to be picking up from where we left off in Colossians. So we are in Colossians 3, 15 through 17. You'll find this passage on page 984 in the Pew Bible. So it's Colossians 3, 15 through 17, 984 in the Pew Bible. Give you a second to turn there. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Now let's pray for his help to do these things. Oh, great God, who we have just sung these songs to, you're worthy of every single syllable, every single word, every single line. You're worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all honor. And now we come to you asking for your help as we dig into this passage in your word We pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives, to apply it to the life of this church. Lord, we were so grateful for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness to us in Christ. We confess that we need your help and that so often we go to the things of this world rather than than you, our God and King, rather than turn to Christ and ask for, for his help. We go to other things thinking that they can satisfy what we need, the help, and provide the help that we so desperately need. We confess that we remain sinful, even though we have been born again and justified, and we ask, Father, that you would use this passage to make us more like your Son, to sanctify us, to help us see areas and ways that we're not living in accordance to your word, and that you would graciously and kindly help us strengthen us. Give us the faith that we need to to change patterns of sin that we have held on to. Help us to see sin for what it is, destruction and hopelessness, and for your son for who he is, our, our great and awesome Savior. God, we give you thanks for your patience, that you continue to work in us and you don't abandon us. You are a perfect heavenly Father. You have sent your Son. You have given us your Spirit. We rejoice in you, triune God. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing suffering, who are going through trials and hardships. We pray for those that are in this room that you would strengthen their faith, that you would remind them of the gospel and the promises that you have for them in Christ, that you will remind them of your goodness and and love for them as your word goes forth in their hearts. We also pray for the non-Christians in our lives. Some of them may even be in this sanctuary. We pray, Father, that you would open their eyes that you would give them ears to hear your word, that you would change their hearts, show them the glories of your son, Jesus Christ, so that they would join us in worshiping him and treasuring him, that more voices would sing praise to him, voices that we love, that that we want to hear singing and rejoicing and reading your word out of faith and, and joy. So we pray, Father, for their salvation. And as we're burdened for them, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom and and, and that we would continue to, to labor in your word and, and share the gospel with them, not giving up hope, remembering that if you saved us, you can save them, Father. So give fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and friends and neighbors faith to trust you and to continue to share the gospel with those that they love and long to see treasure Christ. Now, Father, we do pray that this word from your word would, would make its way into our hearts. Through our heads, we would understand it, but ultimately that it would change our lives. We pray this for our joy and for Jesus' glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, a Christian is someone who has been brought by God out of one kingdom and placed into another kingdom. Paul describes this change in citizenship in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We looked at it many months ago, and we're going to look at it again. So Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul gives us this picture of a change in citizenship. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
And this change in citizenship means that though we Americans have historically been against the, the reign and rule of, of kings and queens over us, it's kind of part of our DNA, it means that the biblical reality is that we Christians, whether we are American or Albanian or Senegalese or Brazilian, well, we have a king who rules over us. And thankfully, this king is no tyrant. Our king is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father's beloved son, and he is a ruler like no other ruler. Jesus is the king who took his throne not by having a crown of gold placed on his head and walking up marble steps and sitting down on a comfortable chair, but by having a crown of thorns put on his head, walking up a dirt road to the top of a hill where he was nailed to a cross so that we, his people, would have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He's an awesome king, a king like no other king. And a Christian is someone who has, by the power of God, through no work of their own, but through faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, been rescued from an evil kingdom, the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and made a citizen of God's kingdom, which is under the rule of the Lord Jesus. Now, having used the language of kingdom in Colossians chapter 1, Paul returns to it here in Colossians 3 with another reference to the rule of Christ. We see this in verse 1, when he exhorts us who have been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God where Christ is seated is where he rules from. It is from the right hand of God that Christ is, is ruling and reigning over his church right now. For this reason, one way to understand the rest of Colossians 3 is that it provides us with a, a detailed description of, of what it looks like for Christ's church to live under Christ's rule. What does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God? What are we supposed to be doing as individual Christians and as a church together that is under Christ's rule? We have a king. How do we submit to him? Well, in verses 5 through 14, we're told that living under Christ's rule means that we are to grow in holiness that we are to pursue Christ-centered sanctification, that we are to become more and more like our king. We're, we're not merely subjects, though we are his subjects, we are his servants, we're also, we're, we're also his people, and we're to conform to his likeness. He's a king who wants us to be like him. And to do this, we must seek to put off things, sins, that we once proudly wore before when we were citizens of the domain of darkness. And that we also must put on those things that are to be worn in Christ's kingdom, Having given us the spiritual dress code in Christ's kingdom, in this morning's passage, Paul begins to tell us what we are to be doing specifically as we live together as the church under the rule of Christ. So the, the previous section, verses, verses 5 through 14, addresses corporate life, our relationships with one another. Uh, but now we're getting more into what, what it looks like for us together to press on under the rule of Christ. And Paul gives us three instructions. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're going to look at each of these instructions and consider how they apply to the life of this church. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to something that all the instructions in this morning's passage have in common. Each of them ends with Gratitude. Look with me again at, at the first instruction in verse 15. We're told to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And then that instruction ends with this call to be thankful and be thankful. Then in the next one, in verse 16, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that ends, that instruction ends with, with telling us to do this with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And the last instruction in verse 17 says that we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then it ends with a call to do this while giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ. Now clearly there's something going on here. Paul's, Paul's not stuttering. He, he's not accidentally making gratitude a part of every instruction. Paul's emphasis on each instruction being done with gratitude is intentional. There's something here for us. So what's so important about gratitude? Isn't it enough for us to just follow the instructions? Why does it matter if we're, we're giving thanks to, to God, if we're, if we're doing what we are told to do? Well, if you've ever interacted with children, and I don't want to just pick on children because this happens in our hearts, but I, it's just, 
the, the adult is just oftentimes better at hiding it. If you've ever told the child, whether you're that child's parent or an uncle, an aunt, or somebody who's babysitting to do something, and they, they, they do it, but they have this like, oh, fine. Like, I'll, I'll do it, but I don't really want to do it. You know that there's something going on in their heart. There's a disconnect. You're, you're, you're seeking to love them. You have an authority over them, and you're telling them, you need to clean up the mess, or you, you need to do your homework, or you need to... to to be careful how you speak to your mother, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're giving them direction. And, they, and, they, and if they're begrudging in their submission, fine, dad, fine, uncle, fine, aunt, fine, babysitter, whatever, I'll do it. You know that they're, they're missing the point. There, there, there's an issue, there's a wrestling, there's, there's, there's a, a real lack of truly desiring to submit. And that's what's going on in this gratitude that Paul keeps on pressing into each of these instructions. Why does God want us to be thankful as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Why do we have to have thankfulness in our hearts as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Why must we be giving thanks to God as we do and say things in the name of Lord Jesus? Here's why. Because thankfulness demonstrates genuineness. Meaning, if we're truly letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we will be thankful the peace of Christ is ruling our hearts. How can we not be thankful? If the, Lord, if, if the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, well, there will be thankfulness in our hearts to God because what is the word of Christ full of? All these great truths and promises. So thankfulness will come out. It will be there. If we're genuinely doing and saying everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, well, we, we will naturally be giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. So we need to recognize this connection in this passage between what God's word instructs us to do, and the importance of being thankful. Because this connection reveals that, that if we're not thankful, well, there, there may be something going on in our hearts. In fact, even if we're doing things on the outside, we might actually not be submitting to Christ we might just be going through the motions. It's easy to come to church, hear a sermon, sing a couple songs, or maybe sing the songs, maybe not because you're too cool for singing or whatever it is, and then just go through the motions and say, yeah, I did it. You, know, you, you can't give me a hard time. I, I, I put in my time. But that's just ritualism. That's just going through the motions. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, there will be thankfulness in your heart. doesn't mean there's a, always a smile on your face. doesn't mean life is all happy and go lucky, it, it, but it does mean that there will be some thankfulness coming out of you. And so, Christian, do you find it hard to be thankful? Are you bitter? Are you holding on to bitterness? Do you get angry often? Do you struggle to get along with other Christians? Would you say that you are in a season of being discontent? We all struggle with contentment at times. We've got to battle for contentment. But, but as you think about your life and your heart, have you been for a while in a season of being discontent? Well, if you find yourself answering yes to some or maybe even most of these questions— it may very well indicate that the peace of Christ is not ruling in your heart. That the word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly. That you're not seeking to do and say things in the name of Lord Jesus. You're seeking to do and say things for your own purposes. So Christian, if this morning you're not thankful, and especially if you haven't been thankful for some time, this passage can help you get to the root of your problem. It can reveal, it can diagnose your heart issue. But at the same time, Christian, this passage provides you with the path out of ingratitude, bitterness, anger, frustration, and discontentment. So we want to work through this passage with that in mind. It's going to reveal things about our hearts, help us see things that we need to see that are really hard to see, really hard to say, acknowledge, yep, that's going on in my heart. It's going to diagnose it, but it's not just going to leave us with a diagnosis. It's going to help us work out of that if we're submitting to the word and applying it to our lives. Well, the first instruction that Paul gives the church in verse 15 is that, is that we need to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now here, Paul is not calling for the church to pursue an inner peace. He's not saying everybody go on a monastic trip and, and pursue some vague thing called peace. He's not even saying, church, I want you to let the peace that surpasses all understanding rule in your hearts. This rule of peace is not about that, that peace that God often gives to his people in the midst of great trials and hardships. Now, Paul's exhortation here is for an objective truth to direct, to control, to guide our hearts as Christ's people. 
If we turn again to Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20, we read this there. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Of his cross. We Christians were at war with God. We were rebels who opposed Christ's rule over us, and we broke God's perfect law. But Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, the church, who is our God, who is our king, has made peace between us and God. And how has he done it? By the blood of his cross. Now, sometimes I walk into war, and, and what I mean by war is the skirmishes that happen between little brothers. And, and, I, and I try to end that war by just simply saying, boys, stop. Like, you need, you need to just be at peace. You, know, you need to stop fighting with one another. You need to encourage and love one another. And there is a weight to that because I'm their father. But, but here we're reminded that the weight of the peace, the, the, the reason that we need to have peace is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's, there's more weight in that than in anything else. There is peace between us and God because of the blood of Jesus' cross. Christ's rule is a rule of peace, and the, and the cross has not only brought peace between us and God, Christian, it has also brought peace between you and other Christians, you and me, you and every other person who's trusting in Christ. And Paul describes this peace in greater detail when, he, when in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, he, he talks about the peace that now exists between Gentile and Jewish Christians. Before, before the cross, before God worked so mightily in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles were separated. Now those who trust in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles, become one. There is peace between the Gentile and the Jewish Christian. God's word says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The instruction then in Colossians 3.15, to let this reality of Christ's peace, which has united us to God and to other believers, rule in our hearts, is that. It means that, that when it comes to our relationships with other Christians, Hatred and anger and enmity cannot rule in our hearts. We can't look at a brother or sister and say, I hate them. Okay, I can't say that, but I, I, I really I don't like them. We can't do that because the shed blood of Jesus Christ through the cross has united us together. There is peace between us. We are under Christ's rule, and his rule is a rule of peace. So if Christ rules our hearts then his peace will rule in the church. And this is a reality that we have to strive for as a church. And we need to be reminded, we need to be instructed to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts because we were called in one body. And there are going to be so many things, and there have been so many things, that can disrupt peace in a congregation. Every church is filled with people like us that have been freed from slavery to sin but still struggle with sin, really struggle with sin, who are being sanctified and yet are not glorified. We who have repented of our sin and trusted in Christ alone can sometimes be prideful and selfish and greedy and covetous and rebellious and angry and impatient and unloving and rude and faithless. And the list goes on and on and on. And all of these things, every single one of them, these sins can cause division separating brothers and sisters in Christ, disrupting peace in Christ's church. Like every Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church throughout history, this church is full of people with issues. 
And some of us came from, you know, God-fearing, Bible-believing homes. We were raised around the church. The, 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 the law of God was around us, protecting us. You know, we, we have our issues, and, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're hard. We struggle in certain matters. And then there's others who, who grew up in, in terrible situations, whose parents abused them, who, who were mistreated, who were abandoned. And not only that, but we come from different backgrounds and experiences in life. All, all of this, and then you add to this sin, and then you put us all in a room together, and we're to, told to, to live the Christian life together. There's going to be issues that, that disrupt. There, there are differences in political views. There's a spectrum of believers in this room that, that fall in the line of whatever label you want to give them. There, there are different opinions in this room about taxes and gun control and immigration and some of the racial issues that are going on in our country. Obviously, the Bible speaks to this. The Bible needs to be applied to all these things, and they're all important, but there's a, a spectrum of different ideas and, and convictions on these things. There are so many internal and external forces that can disrupt the peace in Christ's church. But our King, our King, Jesus Christ, has brought us together, made peace between us and God and peace between us and one another by the blood of his cross. So we, church, need to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts because we were called in one body. So we don't have the option to say, nope, I'm at war with that believer. I, I hate them. I'm against them. I oppose them. We need to fight for the truth. You know, if they're going off into heresy, we need to warn them. We need to call them back. There are issues that need to be addressed. It's not, you know, just pretend like everything's fine. Dance through the lilies. Hold hands. Sing kumbaya no matter what. No, no, that's not the picture here of real pursuit of peace. It doesn't mean that, that as we pursue peace, we're going to be best friends with everyone in the church, in this church. We can't be. We, we, we just can't. If, you're, if the church is full of more than five people, there's no way that we can be best friends with everybody in the church. It doesn't mean that you will see eye to eye with every Christian in your church on everything, because you won't. You should discuss those matters. You need to have your convictions and share them. You need to do that in a winsome and loving way. Be kind and gracious to your brothers and sisters that you disagree with. Letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart does, does mean, though, that, that because Christ has made peace between you and God and you and your other Christian brothers and sisters, you work hard to maintain peace with others. And the reality is that Peace takes effort, and sometimes it takes a lot of effort. Sometimes you just want to give up. It would be so much easier to not pursue peace, to just stop, to just say mean things, to slander, to, to argue with everybody. That If you're controlled by your emotions, you're not submitting to the rule of Christ, the peace of Christ, that, that's, what, that's what will be much easier. It takes a lot of energy and effort to, to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Think of the, the UN, the United Nations, and, and all that, that goes on in their efforts to maintain international peace between countries. Some of these countries are always seemingly on the brink of war. And, and so the UN and other organizations, they, they exist, they're supposed to exist to, to help the dialogue, to, to work through that so that war doesn't break out. And, and to maintain and to pursue peace, it, it takes time and energy and money, a discussion, compromise to prevent nations from going to war. Likewise, in Christ's church, we have to work hard for peace, for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts so that we don't go to war with one another. This peace will take time, energy. We might need to even spend some money. Not that we're bribing them for peace. That's not, that's not what I mean. But I mean, you might have to say, you want to go out for, for a cup of coffee, my treat? <laughs> Brother, sister in Christ that I'm, I'm, I'm in conflict with, let's, let's get together. Let's bring our Bibles, not, not to sit there and to, to win an argument, but to submit to Christ together. And one of the ways that we will do that is by letting the, the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. You might need to have a couple over at your house because you've had some conflict. There's been a misunderstanding. Maybe they've sinned against you or you've sinned against them. And so you have them over and you repent together and you, you cry together and praise God for the gospel together. And you leave with, with the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. We're given a good list of what it will take to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts in the previous verses, Colossians 3, 13, and 14. We're going to need to put on compassionate hearts, to not vilify and make everybody that disagrees with us an enemy, as if they're, they're an agent of the devil, as if a demon has all of a sudden possessed them because they don't see eye to eye on you with gun control, it matters. 
That, that, that's ridiculous. You, you need to have a compassionate heart. These things matter. If you have a strong opinion about things, I'm not telling you to not, not work through that and, and share it with other Christians and, and, and talk about things. That's not it at all. That will help us grow uh, and, and disciple one another. We need to show each other kindness. We enter into discussions when there's a conflict. We're not out to, to destroy them, to make them feel terrible and to crush them. We, we, we need to have a kind heart towards our brothers and sisters. We need to be humble, recognizing that we don't know everything, that, that maybe they're right and we're wrong, or maybe we're right and they're wrong, but, but we don't want to just win the argument. We want to win their heart. Maybe it's a, a doctrine issue. They've gone off on crazy land. They're believing the prosperity gospel. They, they, they think that they had too much of a role in their salvation, and we're working through that with them. We need to be humble and winsome It's submitting to Christ. We need to be meek in control of our strength. We need to have patience with one another, extending grace and, and mercy to one another. We're going to need to bear with one another and forgive each other. Be willing to go the long haul. This isn't a short thing. This isn't just, okay, you know, we, we pursued peace one time and I'm done. I, I tried that. It's not working. So I can just set aside all those commands of my king that tell me to pursue peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ because I tried it once. Tried it twice with that person. No, it happens again. What do you do? Okay, time to pursue peace. The UN has appeared. We'll call it something else. But, but we need to pursue peace together. And it's going to take us forgiving one another over and over again. And above all, we're going to need to put on love, which will bind us together in perfect harmony. If you, child, have been loved by God, well, then you have what you need to love your brothers and sisters. You have the love of God. So love them. And how will we know if, if we're letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, we will be thankful. We will be thankful people. And I think this thankful in verse 15 at the end of it refers especially to being thankful for other Christians in your church, even those who require the most effort to be at peace with. You look at them and you say, we've gone through some hard times. They've sinned against me a bunch of times. I've sinned against them a bunch of times. We, we hate that, that we have, we've done that, but we've walked through that together. We love each other, and I'm thankful for that brother or sister in Christ. If that's not in your heart, if you see other brothers and sisters in Christ here on a Sunday morning, you walk into church and you see them across the room and you're like, oh, oh, oh. There's a problem in your heart. We don't, we don't need to talk about their heart. There's a problem in your heart. You need to be thankful to the shed blood of Jesus Christ because God, before time, determined to save that brother or sister in Christ for his glory, out of his own mercy, for his purposes. Well, they're a vessel of, 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 of mercy. They're a trophy of his grace. And you need to be thankful. Even if it's just for that, you need to be thankful for that brother or sister in Christ because of that. The second instruction Paul gives to the church is that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I love that language, dwell in us richly. The word of Christ needs to be making a home in us. Not only is Christ's peace to rule in our hearts, Christ's word which is synonymous with the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, must dwell in us richly. After all, if we are under Christ's rule, well, we need to hear, we need to know, and we need to do what our king says. And how do we know that? It's the Bible that tells us what our king says. And it is by his word through the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts that Christ guides his church, that he feeds his church and strengthens and matures and warns and protects and cares for his church. So we desperately need Christ's word. And if the word of Christ is truly dwelling in us richly, well, what's going to be the result again? Thankfulness in our hearts. Why? Because we will hear about who Christ is. We'll hear about our king. Every single time the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we're hearing about the king. We're hearing about Jesus. That's going to cause the Christian to have some thankfulness in their heart. We're going to be hearing about what God has done for us in Christ, in the gospel, we're going to hear the promises of God. They're going to be in us, in our minds and in our hearts. We're, we're going to remember that, that we have been saved to worship and to enjoy God. Why were you saved, Christian? So that you would worship and enjoy God for the rest of your days. That's, that's why you exist right now. That's why you were saved, to worship God and to enjoy God. And if that doesn't bring about some thankfulness in your heart, I get to worship and enjoy God, well, then there's a disconnect. The word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly. When the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we will hear what's to come for us who are in Christ, who Christ has redeemed. 
as these glorious truths from the word of Christ are put into our heads, well, our hearts will eventually overflow with gratitude. You can't help but be thankful when you ponder the word of Christ, when it's dwelling in you richly. And I love here, Paul gets really practical. Well, how do we get the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? He gives us two specific ways to do that. The first is by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. God's word needs to be taught to God's people. I mean, it's basic, but in our culture, in the evangelical church in America, this is like, this basic thing is being lost. No longer are sermons expositional preaching. This is what the Bible says. You need to hear it. They become conversations where we just kind of share our suggestions and our, our ideas. But this is why this teaching and admonishing to to get the word of Christ to dwell in us richly is why sermons are to be full of God's word. Imagine that. A sermon is full of God's word. I mean, that's basic, and yet it's become weird and odd in some church settings. It's why faithful preaching is Christ-centered and expositional. That is, it makes known the word of God to the people of God. This is why sermons are not to be entertaining monologues full of personal stories and personal experiences and jokes and man-centered ideas. You should never leave a a church service saying, wow, I really like that pastor. He's very entertaining. I I just like him. I just want to be his friend. You should leave a sermon after you hear the word of God saying, wow, God's word is awesome. Wow, I need to submit to Christ more and more in my life. Wow, Jesus is better than I thought. That, that's the type of thing that you should leave a sermon. With. And so it, it just, oh, it just, I just cringe when I talk to brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, I just, I just really like his style. I just really like, you know, I leave just happier. Well, what if that text was about sin and you're stuck in your sin and you're living in sin? You don't need to leave happier. You need to leave holier. You need to leave repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus and seeing him as your greatest treasure. And, and yet some people just want an entertaining monologue. They want their ears tickled. They want to leave happier and skipping along. When that's not what they need. They need the word of Christ to dwell in them richly. And so for this reason, Sunday school teachers are not babysitters who watch the children so that their parents can hear the sermon. They are those who have been tasked by the church to teach the word of Christ to our precious little children. To get the word into their heads and pray that the word would go down to their hearts and they would believe it. For this reason, our community groups exist so that the word of Christ would be heard and understood and obeyed and applied. For this purpose, the youth group and the men's and the women's ministry exist to get the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That's why these things exist. They're mediums, they're modes to get the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And the word admonishing that Paul uses here can also be translated as instructing or warning. So that's part of what we are to do with the word. We're to instruct and warn one another. And so we admonish with the word of Christ when we use it to give counsel to other Christians who need encouragement, who who need to be warned or corrected or or need counsel on what they should do. And, and, And they're in a crossroads. They need the word of Christ to instruct and direct them. Admonishing requires that that we not only hear God's word, but we apply God's word to our own lives and we help others apply the word of Christ to their lives. What this means is that teaching and admonishing requires that we bring the word of Christ into our relationships with one another so that our relationships are word-centered, so that, so that we're not just talking and hanging out all the time and just having fun playing sports or doing hobbies together. No, every single relationship is, have, is to have the word of Christ involved as we press on to, to enjoy and serve Christ. This is to happen in every area of the church, from the pulpit to the pews to our weekly gatherings in community groups to our texts and our conversations on the phone. We're to admonish one another. It's not just a negative thing, though there's this correcting and rebuke aspect to it. There's this positive, I need to be encouraged. I need to be reminded of the truth. So we need to be a church so full of the word of Christ that they're like a soda that is shaken up. You know, you shake up a soda and then you open it up, what happens? It bursts all over the place. That needs to be like us, church. When the word of Christ comes into us and, and we're, we're, we're dwelling on it and it is dwelling in us, well then, when we open our mouths, it's to burst out of us like a soda can that has been shaken and is now bursting with all that, that energy. We're to be energized and bursting out with, when we open our mouths, the word. 
We don't want to draw primarily from our experiences and give our opinions. And sometimes we Christians get caught up that, oh, I, that happened to me. My kid went through a stage like this, and this is the answer. You just got to do this. You, you gotta, this, this is always the solution. Well, it, it might be helpful, but what they really need is they, they need the word of Christ in that situation. So, sure, give some advice, some ideas, some, some just practical wisdom, but bring the word of Christ there because that brother, that sister, whatever they're facing, whether it's a parenting issue or marriage issue or it's a work issue or just a sanctification issue, they don't just need your suggestions. They need to be dwelling on the word of Christ. And so we got to give it to them. It's the Bible that teaches us what to believe. It's the Bible that tells us how we are to live. What we are to do is Christ's church. And so we need to be all about the Bible because we are under the rule of Christ. He's our king. He's the ruler of this kingdom that we have been so graciously and wonderfully brought into. And so we need to hear what he says and do what he says. And we hear and do as we read and dwell on the word of Christ. Well, the second way that Paul says that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I am so excited to get into this aspect of dwelling on the word of Christ richly. Friends, this means that corporate worship and song is another means that God has given to us to get Christ's word to dwell in us richly. Do you think about singing on Sunday mornings at church this way? That, that what we're really doing, along with singing, of course, this is, we're singing first and foremost to God, but that we're also singing for one another. That there's this aspect of, of every word, every line, not just only being to God, but also for one another. Well, if, if you don't think, think this way, I hope that after today you will. Christ's church under Christ's rule is to be a singing church And the songs that Christ's church sings when we gather together to worship the Lord need to be then songs that are full of the word of Christ. They need to be filled with biblical truth. This is why we as a church have worked hard to fill our songbook with songs that are filled with God's word. Whether they be psalms that are set to music or old hymns or modern hymns or new worship songs. The songs that we sing together need to contain the truths that we believe. This is also why we have chosen not to sing many of the most popular contemporary worship songs that maybe if you came from another church you're familiar with. This is why we don't sing songs that that repeat the same three words over and over and over again. Because we're not stupid. We can get it after two times. We We can sing a line and say, I get it, I believe it, I need it. Now give me some more. This is also why we don't sing songs that if you just change a few words around, they would really just be love songs to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We don't sing those songs because we need to sing the songs that tell us what we believe, that are full, that are drenched, that are soaking with the truth, the word of Christ. We need to sing songs that teach us about God. Sing songs that, that are full of the gospel. They, they, they need to be songs that tell us about the wickedness of our sin the glories of Christ. They need to be songs that point us to the cross and the hope that we have in the resurrected Christ. They need to contain God's promises. They need to instruct us and they need to warn us, don't go towards sin, brother. They need to be songs that tell us, don't go towards sin, sister. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's one of the songs that we sing. They need to contain all of God's truth. If we view corporate worship in song rightly, as singing to God and for one another, well, we're going to want to sing songs that are rich with God's word, that teach us God's truth. So Christian, I want to take this opportunity to encourage, even admonish, so I'm going to use the word that Paul uses here, at least in our English translation, admonish. I want to admonish you to sing. I want to call you to take worship and song seriously to see singing together as a means that God has given us to get Christ's word not only into our own hearts, but into the hearts of all those that are here on Sunday morning. Don't make excuses to not sing praise to God with your church. In his book, Singing and Making Music, Paul Jones writes this. He was for a long time a music director. Some of you may be familiar with James Montgomery Boyce uh, or Philip Ryken. He was the music director at the church where those, those men faithfully preached the gospel. And he wrote a book about worship. And this is what he says in it. I frequently encounter men and women who say that they do not sing. There are many reasons for their lack of vocal participation. 
but I have yet to hear one from anyone with working vocal folds that would be an adequate excuse before God. Fear is the least cited but generally all-inclusive reason. It takes many forms, fear of error or embarrassment, fear of what others think, fear of losing control, fear of criticism, criticism, fear of offending others. Such self-conscious behavior may be appropriate to certain situations or aspects of our person, but it has little place in the corporate worship of the Almighty. God never said, if you feel good enough about yourself, sing to me, or as long as you have a peer-approved voice, praise me in song. According to scripture, the praise of God is not an optional activity. I, I not too long ago, had a conversation with a man, a, a man that I love and care for, uh, and he's a part of another church, and he boasted in this conversation that he never sings in corporate worship. I, I kindly, and I promise you, it was kind. Uh, he, he didn't want to fight me after I said this. There was no throwdown or anything like that. But I kindly reminded him that God's word commands his people to sing praise to God and to do it together. Well, he shrugged and he told me that he has a terrible voice and that his late mother even told him not to sing in church. That's bad counsel. I guess moms don't know everything. Here's another helpful quote from Paul Jones to any of you who are like this man that I spoke with. If we do not sing, we disobey God and miss out on the rich blessing derived from this activity. Do not hold back because you lack musical training or because your husband or your mother, I'll add that, says you are tone deaf or because it does not seem like a manly thing to do. If Moses, David, and even Jesus Christ sang, it is a manly thing to do, a God-fearing thing to do, and a Christian thing to do. We need to sing with God's people because it is one of the ways that God has given us to get Christ's word to dwell in us richly. Thinking this way about corporate worship and song will radically shape, maybe even change, how you view singing together as a church. When we sing together, we are singing to God and for one another. To drive this point home even further and to get us excited to sing to God and for one another, I want to consider some of the words that we sang together earlier when we sang All Creatures of Our God and King. And some of you were not here to sing this song because you come in five or ten minutes late every single Sunday. I say this in love. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. If, if you continue to come ten minutes late, fine. I love you. Keep on coming ten minutes late. But, I, but I'm burdened for you. I want you to be able to sing every single song that we get to sing together as a church. And you're missing out. And some of you have this big deal with the announcements. All right, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I think it'll be helpful. I'll bring it back in a minute. The announcements are before the service officially begins when we call the, worship, call the church to worship. And I love them there, and we're not going to change that. And some of you will say, well, I didn't hear about that. We have a bulletin. Read the bulletin. Everything's there. We're sending out emails, and we're saying the upcoming things that are, that are going on in the life of the church at 9 o'clock. You want to hear them. You can read the bulletin. I get, not, not, you, if you want to read about them, you can read the bulletin. If you want to hear them being spoken, you can come at 9 o'clock every single Sunday or 10.30 every single Sunday, and they will be spoken here. I say this in love. I do not want you to miss out on the announcements. I don't want you to miss out on the first song or the second song. And you are. You would not be late to work. Why would you be late to worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? So I say this in love, not to heap condemnation or make you feel bad. Though if the Lord uses that to get you here on time, praise God because you will be able to, in your life, sing hundreds more songs with God's people before he comes back or takes you home. So don't miss a single song. I'm going to read some lines that you haven't sung yet because you weren't here. And so I'll read them to you. And I want to use these, these words to get you excited about singing to God. They come from all creatures of our God and King. All the redeemed washed by his blood. Come and rejoice in his great love. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. 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 That's what we're saying to one another. We're singing it to God, but we're, we're singing it also for one another. So think about it. Husbands and wives, when you sang these words, if you were here singing them, you were singing them to God, but you were also singing them for your spouse who's sitting or standing next to you when you sing them. 
You may have had a conflict in the car on your way here. You might have just been off. And now God in his infinite goodness and mercy to his children has you husband, even though you were a jerk to your wife in the car, singing biblical truth to your wife who's sitting right next to you, who needs to hear these truths because she is working through loving a husband who is not loving her like he should love her. And vice versa, wife who has snapped on her husband, who is not showing him grace, who refuses to submit to his leadership as he seeks to, even though he doesn't imperfectly lead his family, Now you're singing these precious words to your husband who's right next to you, or maybe a a few seats uh, between you because you've got three or four kids between you. Think about the power of that. You're hearing this person that you're struggling to love and be at peace with saying these truths. Oh, how precious. Dads and moms, you were singing these words to God and for your children, even if they don't seem to be listening, paying attention. Children, you were singing these words to God and for your siblings and your parents who you may have a conflict with later this afternoon. And yet God's going to use in his providence some of these truths that you don't even realize. They're going to make their way down in your heart and he's going to use them to help you be at peace and to work through that conflict. He's, He's doing all these things as we sing. Children, you were singing these songs for that reason, so that you would be at peace, so that you would have these truths to draw from later on. Single men and single women, you are singing these verses to God and for one another as you, as you wait for what God has for you. Brother or sister who is struggling with a sin, fighting against it, you are singing, all the redeemed washed by his blood, come and rejoice in his great love. You are singing that to God and for all the others in this room who need to remember that Christ died to redeem them and paid for their sins so they're forgiven. And they needed to hear you sing those words to them. Corporate worship and song is a weapon that God has given us to fight against sin. And it's a way for us to get the gospel into our own hearts, but even more into each other's hearts. That's what we're doing when we're singing together. It's the coolest, most manliest, most womanliest, most Christian thing we can be doing. Singing these truths to God and for the good of one another. And that's what we're doing, Christian, when we sing together. That's what we're doing when we sing with thankful hearts to God. We're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So sing, church. If we get this, if we get this, the decibels will increase in our singing. We will not care as much about what other people think about our voice. We will care that they're hearing these truths from our lips, that they're going out and God is using them to to help and shape and change and encourage the saints. It's awesome if you think about singing praise to God together. Well, the last instruction that Paul gives in verse 17 is that we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The first two instructions are very specific. This last one is a general and all-encompassing instruction. So do these things, do these things. Oh, by the way, do everything in the name of the Lord, the King, Jesus Now, this does not mean that Paul is saying that after you take out the garbage, you need to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I take out the garbage. He's not saying that when you say goodbye to a friend on the phone that you need to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I say goodbye to you, my friend. He's saying here that there's not an area of our lives that is not to be for Christ and under Christ. He's saying that Jesus' rule extends over all that we do and say. That every conversation that we have, every, every function that we perform, every act that we do is under the rule and reign of Christ. This is another time to say there's no such thing as just having Jesus as your Lord and not having, or just having him as your Savior and not Lord. I get that and we grow and sometimes we become Christians and there's seasons of sanctification and we wrestle and we wander. I get that, but here's the reality. Jesus is king over his kingdom. So if you're part of the kingdom, he's your king, he's your Lord. Whether you always acknowledge and submit to his rule or reign is a different issue, but he's always the king. There's not a time where you kind of say, okay, now that I'm part of the kingdom and I've been hanging out here in the kingdom for a while and this is great and fun and nice, well, all right, can I switch my green card or can I get rid of the green card and get, get a, a passport? That doesn't happen. You're either in the domain of darkness, serving the evil king under the rule and reign of Satan, or you're in the kingdom of Christ and he is your king. And so everything you say or do, whether you recognize it or not, is to be in the name of the Lord Jesus, because guess what? He's your king. And so you're to serve him. Every word, every conversation ultimately is under him and it needs to be for him. And so in the verses that follow this morning's passage, which we'll look at together in the coming Sundays, 
Paul begins to apply this instruction to specific relationships, like those relationships in the family, wives, husbands, children, parents, and into the workplace, into into our relationships with one another. And so we're going to be, in the coming weeks, looking at that. How does the rule and reign of Christ affect how we how we view marriage and our relationship with our spouse, if we have a spouse, how we parent, how we, how we work, how we lead, how we manage. It, it, it's all under the rule and reign of Christ. In church, we are to be one thankful church under Christ. And the way that we show that we are unified under Christ is by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly and doing everything we do and say everything we say in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what it looks like to, to submit to the rule and reign of Christ together. And it's beautiful. And so let's put this into practice. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then we're going to have the opportunity to sing three songs together. And I encourage you, this is not just a one-off, one-time encouragement, exhortation to sing and sing praise to God for the good of your brothers and sisters. I'm hoping and praying that in the coming weeks, though we are a singing church, that we become even more of a singing church because we need to be so that the word would dwell in us richly. So let's pray. Lord in heaven, we are so thankful that we have been by your grace through the mighty work of your hand been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of evil, and brought into your kingdom. The kingdom of Christ. That we have a perfect, great, glorious, awesome, sweet king who, who rules us perfectly, who reigns over us perfectly, who guides and instructs us perfectly. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so as we work through the application of what it means to live under his rule and reign, as we seek to submit our hearts in every single way, especially in these instructions to to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and and to, to have everything we say and do be in the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray for your help. We know that you're gracious, that you continue to be gracious towards your children, even as we struggle to actually submit to our King, you are kind and patient. And yet we pray that we would move, move on, that we would grow, that we would continue to press on and, and be greater and, and more joyous and thankful citizens of the kingdom of Christ, who willingly and gladly submit to his rule in every single situation and area of our lives. So we pray for help. We pray that we would love our brothers and sisters more and better, that we would not be seeking to build our kingdom, but Christ's kingdom, and that we would enjoy him more and more. We pray this for his glory, for your glory in the church. In Jesus' name, amen.